And thanks for the invitation to come here to the Mirshan Center. Uh, so my talk today is about the politics of empire, uh, but of a particular sort. That is, the politics of empire in a world in which empires formally aren't supposed to exist. So let me elaborate uh, a little bit about what I mean by that with a little bit of intellectual biography. Uh, let's see if I can get this to work. Aha. Okay. So uh, I am, of course, a Russianist by training, not a specialist in international relations. And as my fellow Russianist uh, Dominic Levin wrote in his very good book on empire, uh, published in 2002, he said, a Russianist by definition comes to the study of empire from a strange angle. Well, why? Uh, basically because uh, we lost our country of study. Um, we gained 15 other countries. <laughs> Uh, but we lost uh, our country of study. And my interest in the study of empire basically grew out of my work on the Soviet collapse, in particular uh, my study of uh, Soviet nationalities issues. So it came from a study of internal politics rather than uh, essentially rooted in that than external politics. Now, of course, mesmerization, the Ru given Russia's mesmerization with empire over the last six centuries, which is a beguilement which still hangs over uh, the country and the entire region today, uh, the issue of empire is one that anybody who studies that region of the world has to grapple with uh, to some degree. And in the case of the Soviet Union, uh, empire was not a status that it sought. Uh, it was uh, a status that it was stuck with, uh, unlike previous Russian empires. So the USSR was founded... Uh, in uh, historian Terry Martin's uh, words as, quote, the world's first post-imperial state uh, in direct opposition to the European imperial system. Uh, in Martin's words, the Soviet Union became uh, the first multi-ethnic state in the world to define itself uh, as an anti-imperial state. The Bolsheviks were not indifferent to the, world, to the word empire. They rejected it explicitly. And yet, as we know, uh, the Soviet Union died almost universally recognized as an empire uh, by its East European allies, by its own minorities, by many populations abroad, uh, and even by large numbers of Russians themselves at the point in time when the Soviet Union collapsed. So as one Russian nationalist uh, bemoaned at the height of the mobilizations that brought down the Soviet Empire, he said the dirty and insidious lie about Russian imperial thought has become so ubiquitous uh, that it is already taken by the intelligentsia and the average person as a banality that need not even be discussed. So the representation of the Soviet Union as an empire was far more than Cold War sloganeering. Uh, on the contrary, it was a reputation, a reputation that the USSR earned uh, as an illegitimate and alien form of power uh, through its behavior, uh, through the oppositions that those behaviors evinced, it was a reputation that emerged over many years, didn't just suddenly emerge, although it uh, grew exponentially under the conditions of Glasnost. And indeed, uh, as is evident from this uh, figure here, uh, of the frequency of the term Soviet empire as reflected in American, British, French, Spanish, and Italian presses uh, from 1980 to 2007, uh, the Soviet Union's reputation as an empire only really fully consolidated outside the country, specifically in Western Europe and the United States, uh, in the wake of the major waves of 
opposition that the Soviet Union experienced in the late 1980s uh, and the country's ultimate, ultimate collapse in 1991. Uh, what's more, as I'll explore a little bit today, Russia's imperial reputation did not die with the collapse of the Soviet Union, but it remains uh, an essential part of the persona of contemporary Russia. Uh, indeed, uh, today, uh, as uh, uh, Grigory uh, Yevlinsky has noted, Russia has a democratic flag, what was essentially the flag of the provisional government of 1917, a Soviet national anthem uh, with rewritten words, and a czarist state symbol. Uh, and so it's little wonder that Russia is viewed today by many, including its own citizens, uh, through the prism of its imperial past. And so the Soviet experience uh, naturally forces one to approach the study of empire, I think, from a strange angle, uh, to consider the issue of what states do uh, in a world in which empires aren't supposed to exist. What do states do uh, to earn reputations as empires? So I'm going to elaborate on these terms uh, subsequently, but I just wanted to throw these terms out here as, as I define them so you have a sense of, of where I'm, what I'm talking about here. Uh, I define empire as a relationship of foreign domination involving the usurpation of a society's uh, freedom, territory, wealth, or sovereignty. I define imperialism in the same way as Michael Doyle does as the process or policy of establishing or maintaining an empire. I define imperial reputation rather simply as collective beliefs about the imperial character of a state. Now, the Soviet Union, of course, is by no means the only contemporary state to have gained a widespread imperial reputation despite its rejection of that status. The United States is another example of a state that consistently denies any imperial intent, as Niall Ferguson famously called it, the empire that dare not speak its name, uh, though it has often and is often tagged with the imperial label by others. Uh, so the United States, of course, has had a long history of open pursuit of empire in the 19th century, but in the 20th century, uh, it abandoned formal empire, though accusations of American empire persisted, particularly from the political left, uh, encouraged by frequent American interventions in Central America, the rise of U.S. global power during the Cold War, and the American misadventure in Vietnam. But as you all know, during the administration of George W. Bush, America's imperial reputation grew tremendously, fed by America's aggressive assertion of its interests abroad, uh, its policies of preemptive warfare aimed at ensuring American superiority, its denigration of international legal institutions, and its embrace of unilateralism. Now, President Bush and other American officials, of course, denied America had any imperial intent. As Donald Rumsfeld famously put it in February 2003, he said, we're not a colonial power. We've never been a colonial power. We don't take our force and go around the world and try to take other people's real estate or other people's oil. That's just not what the United States does. We never have and we never will. That's not how democracies behave. And yet, despite these denials, uh, it's my own content analysis of uh, representations of uh, contemporary states as uh, imperial uh, shows. I've looked at about 4,000 articles that appear in, in the publication World News Connection, which is a translation of articles from around the world. You can see what you probably already know. Uh, that is the exponential rise of accusations of, of empire, of uh, imperialism, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States, uh, which skyrocketed during the Bush years. 
now, in response to American policies that were widely viewed as imperial, favorable views of the United States declined in Great Britain from 83% in 2000 to 51% in 2007, in Germany from 78% to 30%, in Turkey from 52% to 7%. Uh, these were, of course, some of our closest allies. Uh, a March 2004 Pew survey found that in seven of nine countries surveyed, Russia, France, Germany, Pakistan, Turkey, Morocco, and Jordan, majorities believed that American foreign policy was motivated by the desire to control Middle East oil. Uh, and uh, majorities in five of these nine countries, France, Pakistan, Turkey, Morocco, and Jordan, believed that the U.S. was motivated by goals of world domination. By 2006, a YouGov Daily Telegraph poll in Great Britain, our closest ally, uh, found that 58% of British citizens agreed with the statement that it was fair to describe the United States as, quote, an imperial power, one that wants to dominate the world by one means or another. Uh, even many Americans came to recognize uh, the reality of an imperial America. A Zogby, a Zogby International Foreign Policy Association poll taken in 2003 found that 59% of the 1,000 Americans sampled agreed with the statement that the United States is, quote, an imperialist power that acts on its own regardless of what the rest of the world thinks. Now, overwhelmingly, Americans were not happy about this. Uh, about their growing imperial reputation abroad. On the eve of the 2008 electoral uh, election, public opinion polls showed that more Americans believed that improving America's image abroad was very important, uh, more important than any other foreign policy goal identified. So 83% of the public identified improving America's standing in the world uh, as our, what, what is our major, should be our major foreign policy goal. And of course, this played into the election of President Obama. Now, as these examples show, we live today in what I would call a normatively anti-imperial world. Uh, as a result of the demise of the European colonial empires and the rise and consolidation of norms of sovereignty and self-determination, empires today are no longer supposed to exist. They've been replaced, supposedly, by empires and emesis, the nation-state, uh, a form of polity uh, whose most conspicuous characteristics are its claim to exclusive right to rule over a territory, a fixed territory, its claims to represent a distinct political community deserving separate statehood, uh, and the embodiment of these claims in international law and their recognition by other polities who make the same claims. So no state today would openly admit to being an empire or pursuing imperial ends. Contrast that with a little over a century ago when empire was understood as a necessary attribute of a modern state uh, it was the embodiment of civilized norms and modes of behavior. It was considered to be an inevitable feature of modernity. It was a model to be emulated. So a little over a century ago, most states consciously sought to foster imperial reputations for themselves as re a recognition of their power, uh, their legitimacy, uh, and their civilizational superiority. So obviously elaborate justifications for empire have often helped to soothe the imperialist conscience. Uh, but throughout most of history, glory achieved through imperial expansion constituted its own justification for action. And domination over the less powerful was considered a proper and worthy enterprise deserving of boast and swagger. As Tiridates of Armenia observes in the Annals of Tacitus, he says, it is the glory of a king to fight for the possessions of others. 
Now that world obviously no longer exists. It was destroyed by the wars, the revolutions, the nationalist revolts that a world of empire eventually, uh, empires eventually spawned. In sharp contrast to a century ago, today empire is predominantly considered a political pathology. Uh, as historian Stephen Howe has noted, defining something as imperial or colonial today almost always implies hostility to it, viewing it as inherently immoral and illegitimate. Now here you can see in this chart exactly when negative references to states as empires became dominant uh, in American political discourse, uh, that is after World War II, and how negative representations of states as empires became completely hegemonic during the Cold War. Uh, and while negative representations in American political discourse still predominate today, uh, you can see here uh, by 2000, there was a slight rise of what I would call neutral representations, that is, uh, largely uh, examining uh, or, or viewing empire uh, simply as a descriptor for America's overwhelming power in a unipolar world. Now, however, uh, in the rest of the world, the pejorative understanding of empire predom still predominates overwhelmingly. Predominates in the United States, but maybe not quite as large as in the rest of the world. And my content analysis of over 4,000 articles uh, representing contemporary states as imperial found that 98% of these articles uh, spoke of empire in a pejorative tone. And this was true overwhelmingly of almost any group, no matter how you parsed it, parsed the sample. Uh, so true of uh, public officials, of movements, of communist countries, of non-communist countries. You have somewhat uh, lower level of pejorative understandings in the United States and from Russia, uh, but still uh, predominantly uh, over, overwhelmingly negative. Russia actually is probably the only society or one of the few societies in the world where positive attitudes towards empire predominate today. Uh, in fact, a recent State Department poll uh, in late 2008 found that 63% of Russians agreed uh, with the following statement. It is natural for Russia to have an empire. 63% agreed with that. 54%, uh, they tried to tease out what that meant, and 54% agreed with the, with the statement that it is natural for Russia to have other countries under its authority. Uh, so, of course, people may believe that's, that's true in Russia, but calling Russia an empire uh, publicly is another matter. Uh, so you... So Russian officials would never uh, call Russia an empire. In fact, they consistently deny that that's the case. Oops, I have to go back here. So a very different set of attitudes about empire prevails in the United States, as illustrated here in this, in this bottom picture over here, this bottom. Uh, as you can see, at the very moment when the United States became a unipolar power uh, in the world, uh, the frequency of the use of the term empire decreased enormously. Uh, so this measures how many days it took me, it took in the sample to, to reach 50 references uh, to empire. And by 2000, it takes 600 days in the sample of the New York Times. Uh, whereas uh, that was not true, as you can see, going back in time. So Americans don't like to speak of the United States as empire. Uh, they don't like to use the term empire uh, generally, uh, as I'm sure uh, um, many of you feel uncomfortable probably with the term itself. So despite, yeah. 
any state or just the U.S.? That's any state. So does it disappear into the Soviet Union as an empire? Uh, well, I think it's also the fact that, uh, that the United States is not being talked about as an empire uh, here. Also, it's talk being talked about very rarely at the very moment when, when the United States becomes, and this is only in the United States, right? This is the New York Times. So despite nostalgia for empire in right-wing circles in a number of countries, even open calls sometimes for building new empires, uh, that neo-imperial rhetoric contrasts sharply with the ways in which governments uh, invariably betray themselves today. Rather than desiring recognition of their imperial status and seeking the glory of pursuing others' possessions as was fashionable a century ago, today states consistently deny imperial status or intent even when they engage in domination over others. Empire has become an overwhelmingly negative status ascribed to states by others rather than a positive or neutral uh, label that they used to describe themselves. So in essence, it's become a form of bad reputation. Now the book uh, that I'm working on, uh, that Ted made reference to, uh, is an attempt to probe the implications of this enormous sea shift in the normative context of empire for the politics of empire and for our understanding of, of imperial phenomena in a world, as I said, in which empires are not supposed to exist. So in that kind of world, why does empire persist? In what forms does it persist? Uh, and if, in contrast to the past, empires today don't self-identify, uh, are broadly associated with illegitimate power, uh, are a, sta a status almost exclusively used by others to describe, uh, to uh, ascribe to a state, uh, why do some states gain widespread imperial reputations and others don't? Uh, is it simply because they're powerful, uh, because of who they are, or is it a, a widespread imperial reputation a function of what states do uh, and what they've done in the past? Uh, how are imperial reputations made? What consequences, if any, does gaining an imperial reputation have for a state? Uh, how easily can a state shed its imperial reputation? Uh, which is, of course, a question which is relevant uh, for the Obama administration today. So obviously, I can only scratch the surface of, of these issues today. My strategy in the rest of the talk is to give you a, a, sen a sense of why I've taken this reputational turn, some of the theoretical elements uh, in it, I'll, some of the arguments that I'm going to be exploring in the book, and give you a little taste of some of the, the data, the information that I'm going to bring to bear on it. Okay, one of the reasons why I'm animated to study imperial reputations is that uh, in a world of robust anti-imperial norms in which states deny imperial intent even when they do engage in practices of foreign domination, empire invariably assumes informal form uh, with the juridical and empirical dimensions of sovereignty structured so as to mask underlying relationships of domination. This is achieving what Michael Doyle uh, calls, uh, in his words, domination, quote, through collaboration of a legally independent but actually subordinated government. So in these situations of extensive collaboration uh, masked by legality, uh, identifying the difference between foreign domination and the absence of foreign domination becomes difficult without resorting to, the, to how people relate to authority. Uh, one of the principal problems of a purely structural approach uh, to the study of empire uh, that only looks at the presence of hierarchy or the presence of control uh, is that it doesn't address the evident sense of illegitimacy that's attached to the term as it's used today. The overwhelmingly 98% pejorative uh, that, the, that most of the world uh, sees in empire uh, when they talk about it and what it is that's producing that uh, in the application of the term. So uh, 
It, has, it provides no theoretical handle on what makes control legitimate or illegitimate, because in and of itself, hierarchy and control are neither inherently illegitimate uh, or legitimate, uh, neither just nor unjust. They contain nothing of the unflattering connotations that many have said attach themselves to empire today. A structural approach also fails to address the foreignness, the issue of the foreignness of empire. Uh, that is its role as a power that is out of place, uh, both in the literal and figurative meanings of the term, a power that behaves in alienating ways and appropriates that which is believed to, be, to rightfully belong to another. So in this respect, the concept of imperial reputation provides us, I think, with a useful way of thinking about the relationship between actual practices of power, uh, um, of uh, thinking about their relationship to norms and their relationship to collective beliefs uh, in the politics of contemporary imperialism. So I define reputation in the conventional way as collective beliefs about the type or character of an actor extrapolated from the actor's past behavior or based on essential beliefs about the nature of an actor that are claimed uh, to account for the actor's present or future behavior. Within international relations, the concept of reputation uh, has often been applied to the issues of credibility, of deterrence, uh, uh, reputation for resolve, Ted's work uh, on this uh, deal falls into that category. It's been applied to the payment of debts. Uh, it's been applied to why states might follow the prescriptions of international law. And sometimes it's been applied to why central governments might resort to violence in dealing with separatist threats. Uh, as George Downs and Michael Jones note, states can have multiple reputations corresponding to different fields of activity. And here I'm interested in one particular field of activity, of reputation. I'm not interested in why states pay their debts or don't pay their debts. Uh, I'm not uh, interested in whether they have a reputation for resolve. I'm interested in whether they have an imperial reputation. Uh, and uh, what the consequences do, uh, are that flow or do not flow from that. So there are several aspects of reputation that are critical for understanding the politics of informal empire. First. Uh, reputations are rooted in public norms about socially desirable conduct. And this is essentially what we mean by a good reputation or a bad reputation. That's a propensity to act in accordance uh, or in violation uh, with other, what others regard as appropriate behavior. And since empire has become predominantly associated with illegitimate power, reputation helps us uh, connect behavior with extent norms. Second, the concept of reputation is particularly useful for thinking about situations of high uncertainty uh, and asymmetry of information, precisely the kind of situation that we talk about in informal empire, where you don't know what the intentions of the actors are. Uh, so you need some way to cut through it. Uh, empires don't self-identify. The intentions of the powerful are unclear. And the lines between domination and legitimate forms of power are consciously blurred. Third. Uh, reputations are based in real streams of behavior, of observed behavior, and are in part embodiments of an actual history. So rational choice theory encourages us to construe reputation as an emergent property of repeated interaction. So in the, in the language of Bayesian inference and of game theory, an actor's future behavior is derived as a probability assessment of the history of an actor's past behavior. And in this sense, reputation connects us with a behavioral history that helps us to understand why the power of a particular state comes to be judged as imperial or not. Now, one of the things that rational choice doesn't pay that much attention to and really has it as an embedded assumption is the key role of memory in this. 
That is, if you have a stream of behavior uh, uh, going on, that memory plays a key role, uh, and memories can vary, of course, to be re relatively short or relatively long. Um, so memory plays a key role in uh, whether, uh, and whether they're sustained over time, a key role uh, in uh, reputations. Uh, finally, while rooted in a real behavioral history relative to extent norms, reputations are also to some degree constructed. And it's been shown at the level of the small group, for instance, that individuals' reputations are formed through networks of gossip. Uh, a person's reputation is reflected to a large extent about what others say about him. Once a group grows larger than a few dozen individuals, uh, the emergence of a re reputation comes to depend on an individual's notoriety and visibility. Uh, which is why some units may gain a particular reputation or some individuals may gain a particular reputation and others might not, more visible. Uh, they depend upon behaviors that attract significant attention within communication networks. Uh, and we saw earlier uh, in the Soviet example, resistance was critical to the consolidation of a Soviet imperial reputation, uh, in part because it made domination visible. It made it overt uh, and it was difficult to judge the nature of domination without that resistance, um, particularly among third-party actors. And of course, when interactions are no longer face-to-face, -face, reputations form and flow through media networks. So cross-national opinion surveys in Europe, Middle East, and Latin America have shown that when you control for the effects of other variables associated with attitudes towards the United States, uh, like attitudes towards uh, civil and political liberties or levels of economic development, uh, access to television and access to the Internet are, uh, one of the strong, are some of the strongest predictors of anti-Americanism, of attitudes of anti-Americanism. Moreover, linking content analysis of media with these individuals' uh, media exposures, it's been shown that individuals who watch television news with a higher percentage of negative statements about the United States hold markedly more negative evaluations of the United States uh, than those who watch television news with the least negative evaluations. Now, there may be some self-selection going on here, obviously, uh, but I don't think that's, that's the whole story. There are, however, some limits to the extent to which imperial reputations uh, are subject to political manipulation. Despite American efforts to shape its reputation through public diplomacy, extensive efforts of public diplomacy throughout the Bush years, uh, anti-Americanism nevertheless rose sharply throughout the world in response to American policies. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you, you've been reading the series uh, about the kidnapped New York Times journalist uh, kidnapped um, by uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, it's just marvelous uh, insight into uh, the thinking of al-Qaeda, of members of al-Qaeda. And uh, what he reports is that most of what, or much of what they had to say about the United States was actually based in things that the United States really had done. Uh, that is, it had a, a root in American behavior. Now, there were many other things also that were meshed with it, things which were rumors and gossip and fabrications. But there was an element of behavior, of actual American behavior in there. So behaviors obviously inter uh, require interpretations, but behaviors also... Uh, reinforce particular attitudes or can undermine particular attitudes. So there's ample room for reputational entrepreneurs to shape reputations. Uh, but I agree with the historian uh, Gary Fine 
uh, who argues that we, we have to recognize both the elements of construction and the elements of behavior in reputations, of real behavior in reputations, and take a kind of cautious, what he calls a cautious naturalism to the study of, of reputation. Okay, so the concept of imperial reputation pushes us to think dynamically about what powerful states concretely do to gain reputations as empires, rather than thinking about empire as merely a reflection of static attributes like power, size, uh, inequality, mode of production, as Marxists would uh, tell us to think about it. One of the reasons I define empire as a relationship of foreign domination involving uh, the usurpation of a society's freedom, territory, wealth, and sovereignty is that that kind of definition, I think, pushes us to think about how power is exercised in the politics of empire, not just about uh, statics like whether a state is powerful or not. So in neo-Republican political theory, domination has a specific meaning that I think is particularly useful for thinking about the politics of empire. Uh, my colleague Philip Pettit notes that domination is, quote, the power of interference on an arbitrary basis. Uh, he puts it, having to live at the mercy of another, of course the archetype, uh, archetypal uh, relationship of domination uh, was slavery. Pettit argues that domination involves an ability to act without regard to constraint. And this is important, without regard con to constraint. Uh, at the will and pleasure of the dominated, without the necessity of having to track the interests, the necessity of having to track the interests of those subject to power. Not whether they do subtract the interests, but the necessity of having to track the interests. So a focus on empire as a form of domination, rather than just as a form of control, uh, directs our attention toward the willful and arbitrary exercise of power across state and cultural boundaries, a power unconstrained uh, by law, norms, institutions, or the need to track the interests of others that, as I'll show in a minute, lies at the basis of, of uh, probably the bulk of accusations about empire in the world today. But the illegitimacy of empire uh, in the world today has revolved not only around arbitrary, uh, the arbitrary exercise of power, it's also been fundamentally about the usurpation of a society's freedom, territory, wealth, or sovereignty across boundaries, across cultural boundaries, across state boundaries. Political theorist Pachin Markle has argued that empire can be understood not only as an unconstrained power, but also as a special case of the more general phenomenon of usurpation, defined uh, as the violent or unlawful appropriation of property or authority that rightfully belongs to another. And the primary practice of usurpation that underlay most empires throughout history was, of course, conquest, uh, the acquisition of another's territory uh, through force. As John Locke noted in his second treatise of government, he says, as conquest may be called a foreign usurpation, so usurpation is a kind of domestic conquest. Now, if you were to look back uh, half a century ago or more, uh, you'd see that people understood empire quite differently than they understand it today. So in 1946, a Gallup poll was taken uh, of 3,000 Americans that asked them, what does it mean for a country to be imperialistic? And the two most common responses were one-man rule. Uh, it was actually grouped together. One-man rule, absolute monarchy, emperor. And the second uh, most frequent uh, uh, response was territorial expansion, building an empire, once more land. So conquest, essentially. 
Now, neither of those are salient aspects of contemporary politics. We don't have empires anymore, uh, and we don't have conquest anymore, uh, as many uh, studies of in, in IR have shown. So once considered a normal and legally valid practice among states, in the mid-20th century, conquest came to be outlawed in conjunction with the global consolidation of sovereignty, uh, sovereignty norms. Uh, through occasional, there are, I mean, there are occasional acts of uh, conquest that still occur. Obviously, Indonesia's uh, con invasion of East Timor, Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara, Saddam Hussein's uh, attempt to, co to uh, conquer uh, Kuwait. Uh, but for the most part, acts of conquest have disappeared uh, from international politics uh, today, and most contemporary charges of conquest actually revolve around historical claims. Uh, they, uh, their origins can go back many, many decades, even hundreds of years ago. They are part of the politics of internal empire and not of the politics of external empire uh, anymore. Uh, they are claims based heavily on historical memory. Okay, so if conquest is no longer uh, part of empire, salient part of empire, of the unconstrained and usurping power associated with empire, what, what is? <clears throat> well, the main argument in my study is that the very anti-imperial norms of sovereignty and self-determination, of just war, etc., that were adopted uh, in order to contain the dysfunctions of empire in the middle of the 20th century, today are the main standards by which we judge the presence of the imperial. Uh, so what norms do I have in mind? Well, generally, what's understood to, uh, to constitute evidence of foreign domination today revolves around visible violations of principles as a set of just war, of sovereignty, of self-determination. Uh, what do I have in mind? Well, one of, this is the obvious, no formal colonies. Uh, no, and most of these norms I'm going to be talking about are embodied in international law. Uh, and people make reference to these embodiments in, in international law. Some are not formally embodied in international law, or their practice has come to be somewhat different than the way in which they're embodied in the international law. So no formal colonies, which essentially means what we talked about earlier, all forms of uh, the imperial must be informal. Uh, second, the prohibition on aggressive warfare and the prescription that force be used only in self-defense or for purposes of collective security as prescribed in the UN Charter. Uh, third, there is the related norm that a military occupation or attack on another country is legitimate only when carried out multilaterally uh, and with explicit approval from the so-called Society of Nations. That is typically with the approval of the UN. So Hobson who termed, who gave us the analytical term imperialism uh, to, to uh, uh, a large extent uh, at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, specifically argues in his work uh, on imperialism that if international intervention by a state were carried out in concert with others and on the basis of the consent of what he called civilized humanity, uh, and if its purposes were to ensure the safety and progress of civilization rather than to appropriate others' territory or wealth, such a situation, he said, would not qualify as an instance of imperialism. Now, that was obviously not the situation when he was writing his, his famous work on imperialism. But today, uh, the world faces many instances of uh, policing of that sort in the form of UN peacekeeping missions, which at times are not welcomed by local populations. Sometimes they're even considered to be imperial by local populations, but they generally don't gain a widespread imperial reputation beyond those societies uh, precisely because uh, 
of uh, this norm. While usurping so sovereignty, they have the approval of the Society of Nations. Uh, fourth, there's the norm that international borders are sacrosanct and can be changed only with the state's consent. This is one of the reasons why Russia's 2008 war with Georgia, uh, which unilaterally altered Georgia's uh, borders, as we'll see in a minute, has been widely evaluated uh, as imperial. Uh, fifth, uh, there is the notion of sovereign equality. Uh, that is the subjection of the powerful to the same international laws and standards that are applied to the less powerful. And this is one reason why, or the main reason why, American unilateralism, the rejection of international law under Bush uh, and inst institutions under Bush were widely interpreted as imperial because they violated this principle of sovereign equality. Sixth, there is the expectation that hegemonic power should be exercised for the provision of public goods rather than for self-aggrandizement uh, or private advantage. And this is one reason why states, when they do engage in acts of foreign domination, invariably frame it as being providing a public good or in self-defense, which is the other norm I talked about earlier. Uh, finally, there's the norm of self-determination, which is applied uh, to territorially-based minorities, uh, usually interpreted in a narrow way as the absence of large-scale violence, and this is how I'm saying it's interpreted in practice, the absence of large-scale violence in dealing with the aspirations of minorities. Uh, in this respect, it's much harder uh, for former colonies to gain an imperial reputation uh, from their poor treatment of minorities than it is uh, for a former empire like Russia, uh, precisely because of uh, the issue of what I'll, I'll call uh, the stickiness of bad reputation that I'll explore in a minute. So international norms that develop to constrain empire function today as one of the key criteria for judging the presence of empire. And you can see... Uh, in the slide, this is from my World News Connection uh, articles, and I identified uh, in these articles these many different reasons that were, or behaviors and qualities that were associated with the imperial uh, in these articles, uh, and parsed them into three general categories. Imposing or exercising control, that is making the rules, breaking the rules or established norms of behavior, and usurpation, taking something that belongs to another. And in this respect, uh, what you find is that 70% of the representations of the United States as empire uh, included some overt mention of the breaking of international rules and norms by the United States, most frequently rules about aggressive warfare, unilateralism, the breaking of international rules on the use of force uh, during this period. So in this respect, empire is not simply about being powerful. There are other things that are associated with empire, uh, about breaking particular norms and rules, usurping others' fr uh, freedom, sovereignty, uh, or territorial wealth outside of the rules, and so on. So fully 87% of the representations of American empire mention some mix of exercising control, breaking rules, and usurpation, and only uh, less than 10% only focused on uh, control, control alone, uh, which tells you that there's something more happening here. So Pettit, in his work on, on republicanism, argues that normally when you have conditions of arbitrary and unconstrained power, uh, when they prevail, they tend to become a matter of common knowledge among the people involved uh, and among others who are party to the relationship. Uh, and 
In fact, there is evidence uh, that acts of imperialism do tend, they do tend to get reflected in public consciousness uh, in particular ways. Here, uh, you can see from the BBC Globescan surveys uh, over time, uh, Russia's uh, reputation abroad, uh, and this is the uh, negative assessments, the growth of negative assessments. You can see here in 2009, the dark blue, uh, how it spikes after the Georgian War, um, uh, specifically the Georgian War having an enormous uh, negative effect between 15 and 30 percent on Russia's uh, reputation uh, across a variety of countries. You'll notice there uh, Russians don't, did, don't uh, have a negative understanding of themselves. Uh, and uh, one of the things that um, uh, a recent BBC poll found that even at the very moment when Russia's neg uh, reputation abroad was growing by leaps and bounds negatively around the world, uh, Russians actually believe, the overwhelming majority of Russians falsely believe that the rest of the world views their power uh, as, as benign. Uh, not, and uh, as good. Um, usually, when empire, empire's imperial power retreats, it's because you have a change in this understanding here. That is, in the understanding, understandings of people in the, what, we, what we call the metropole, uh, of the nature of their own power. So there are a number of reasons why one might uh, qualify Pettit's arguments uh, about the fact that uh, I, I would say the presence of a widespread imperial reputation is a good indicator of the presence of foreign domination. But the obverse is not true. Uh, that is, the lack of a widespread imperial reputation is not sufficient evidence uh, to conclude that foreign domination is absent. And that's so for several reasons. Uh, imperial reputation may not develop widely because it's not visible, as we talked about earlier. Secondly, the scope of an imperial reputation could be constrained by self-interest, as we see here in the case of Russia, and by those who would collaborate with, with imperial power. Uh, and uh, finally, one would expect that practices of foreign domination wouldn't translate easily into a widespread imperial reputation when a dominant group not only holds unconstrained power, but is also able to... to establish the very norms that people use to evaluate whether power is legitimate or, or not. This is the problem of, of ideological hegemony. In fact, the anti-imperial norms that I detailed earlier were shaped in fundamental ways, as we know, by the interests of states. So, for example, in the eyes of international law, sovereignty normally trumps self-determination, uh, rendering it practically impossible for internal empire to gain recognition except uh, through revolution or through uh, battlefield, uh, ch change in battlefield circumstances or through a government recognizing its own dissolution. Uh, similarly, anti-imperial norms as they currently stand place an emphasis on procedural and uh, retri retributive standards of justice uh, in identifying foreign domination and they marginalize issues of distributive justice, uh, which is a complaint which has been central to uh, the global justice movement's critique of the international order. Now, the million-dollar question, of course, is does, uh, in any study of reputation, has to be whether bad reputation matters in affecting the behavior of states. Does having an imperial reputation, in fact, alter the behavior of other states? 
uh, toward the offending state? Uh, uh, and does it create incentives for the powerful to change their imperial behavior? Now, of course, if imperial reputation didn't matter at all, then we might ask the question, why do states cloak their imperial intent? Obviously, they have some reason to cloak their imperial intent. They think that there is some cost involved in openly recognition, re recognizing that. Uh, clearly, uh, you know, there are some kinds of costs involved. The rational choice literature views reputation as central to the establishment of social order through the incentives and disincentives for future cooperation that it creates. So it's likened uh, reputation to a kind of invisible eye uh, that enforces voluntary good conduct in the absence of coercion uh, or immediate material incentive. Those who violate norms repeatedly are punished reputationally by others' behavior toward them in future interactions. So, in particular, rational choice theories emphasize the material benefits that accrue from future cooperation with third parties by following norms and the costs of the failure, the material costs of uh, uh, finding third parties willing to cooperate when one has a bad reputation. Now, that, there, there is some impact of this uh, on, uh, that we, we, we can see of gaining a re, uh, an imperial reputation, particularly in locating third parties willing to cooperate in future endeavors, foot-dragging by allies. Philip Zelikow, for instance, has described how when he was at the State Department, many of America's closest allies started to refuse to cooperate with the United States in counterterrorism policies because, precisely because of America's reputation for unilateralism uh, and disrespect for international law. But the key, key question here is how steep are those costs? Uh, and are those costs sufficient, really, to, to constrain uh, imperial practices uh, and, the, and the great benefits that states do get from foreign domination, that is access to resources, access to markets, access to military bases, and so on. Uh, my argument is normally the direct costs that emerge from third-party refusal to cooperate with a state uh, that acquires an imperial reputation are likely to be significantly outweighed uh, by the benefits that states use, typically gain from uh, imperial practices. There are, however, two other types of influences of reputation that are quite significant. Uh, one has to do with the costs associated with imperial reputation, uh, acquiring a uh, an imperial reputation under a population under your direct control. Uh, so uh, noted, I noted earlier that informal empire is a form of domination that requires collaboration. And so if you can't generate sufficient collaboration, that's, that becomes a, 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 a considerable cost, a considerable cost uh, for, your, for, for your control. And when power is widely evaluated as foreign and illegitimate uh, within a subject population and when opportunities to engage in political op opposition are present, uh, collaborators become more difficult to find and the costs of control can skyrocket enormously due to nationalist opposition. So the costs associated with high levels of nationalist opposition have, in fact, over the course of the 20th century, been one of the key aspects of why empires, formal empires, dissolved. But th those costs still remain when imperial power becomes transparent, the foreign domination becomes transparent, even under inf informal empire. Now, another factor, however, revolves around the moral rather than the material costs associated with living with a bad reputation. So Adam Smith uh, noted in his theory of moral sentiments that we desire both to be respectable and to be respected. We dread both to be contemptible 
and B, contempt. Uh, and Smith contended that in contrast to the rational choice analysis of reputation that emphasizes material costs and incentives, the effect of reputation, uh, he argued, was rooted in large part in the inherent human, the inherent need of human beings to be held in high esteem by others. Uh, a need, he said, that could only prudently be satisfied through the pursuit of virtue. And indeed, public opinion polls have documented the importance of this desire in the American public. Uh, a 2006 uh, world public opinion poll, for example, found that 87% of Americans surveyed believed that it was important, quote, for people in other countries to feel goodwill toward the United States. So we have an inherent desire for respect. Uh, and we saw earlier that this desire among Americans uh, be held in good esteem played some role in Obama's election. Bad reputation abroad can, and doesn't always, but can, under certain circumstances, undermine the authorities of leaders at home uh, when this moral uh, factor uh, comes into play. Now, in this respect, one reason why authoritarian states are more capable of sustaining imperial practices over time than our democracies is that authoritarian regimes are better able to manage the domestic opinion uh, manage domestic opinion by insulating their populations from these negative characterizations of their populations abroad and insulating themselves, of course, from the negative opinions of their own populations. Okay, finally, let me talk about the issue of the stickiness of imperial reputation. Um, so people expect the worst from someone with a bad reputation. And it often takes a long chain of out-of-character actions to prove that the character of the agent has changed before people are willing to trust an agent with a bad reputation. Uh, both the Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia, for instance, inherited the imperial reputation of their predecessor states uh, in ways that colored how others looked at them and played a very important role, ultimately, <coughs> and have played and continue to play an important role in their politics. The former Polish defense minister, Bronislaw Komorowski, put it this way. He said, our past experience shows us that we have every reason to fear Moscow. In Russian, President Vladimir Putin, I could find you dozens of statements like these. These are just a few of examples of the, of the ways in which Russia really does sense this stickiness of imperial reputation. Now, its actions, of course, in recent years have played into this reputation specifically. Uh, but uh, he's, he says, our past experience show us, uh, he, he says, uh, excuse me, the main problem in my view, he says, is Russia's heavy imperial heritage. Everyone thinks for some reason that Russia remains an empire and still treats it as an empire. Now, Michael Toms, in his recent study of financial reputations of states, uh, argued that generally reputations tend to be short-lived, at least in the financial sphere. I would argue that imperial reputations are considerably more durable uh, than a reputation for defaulting on one's debts. For one thing, the consequences of wrongful identification are potentially more serious in the case of imperial reputation than financial reputation. It is a potential usurpation of your freedom, sovereignty, wealth, uh, or, uh, or territory, uh, rather than just a loss of investment. But for another, imperial reputations are often incorporated into national narratives they become embedded in national identities and national memories, making it more likely that out-of-character behaviors by a state 
that has gained imperial reputation can be heavily discounted by certain populations, populations in which these memories persist. Uh, so the institutionalization of reputation in textbooks and monuments and commemorations gives it much more stable intergenerational form. And this has certainly been an element of Russia's imperial reputation uh, in Eastern Europe uh, today. Uh, likewise, America's imperial reputation has been a relatively fixed feature of its relationship with Latin America. There's some variation, uh, but uh, it still uh, persists uh, over a century and a half, rooted in a real history, uh, but also reproduced through narratives, uh, national narratives that are part of broader belief systems. Now, analogous processes are taking place today uh, with what I have up here called the Obama effect. Okay? So we find, for instance, the Obama effect, we find sharp increases in positive ratings of American foreign policy among America's closest allies. And relatively little change uh, to very low ratings within the Muslim world, uh, with the exception of Indonesia, and we know why, uh, because of his uh, childhood spent in Indonesia. Uh, so here you can see that uh, reputations, uh, when uh, an imperial reputation is embedded into national identities uh, and national narratives, it becomes much more resistant to change. And uh, whereas uh, among one's closest friends and allies, they're much more likely uh, to want to believe uh, that your character has changed uh, than is otherwise the case. Okay, I think I've gone way over time, so I think I'll end right there. It changes right after World War II, as I showed there, and it changes because of the consolidation of uh, sovereignty norms and their institutionalization in international law, which changes uh, people's understanding of the imperial. Uh, that is, conquest is no longer uh, allowed after you had a, a, you know, a century or half a century of enormous upheaval, Nazism, uh, you had, uh, uh, and you have decolonization, uh, the, uh, all of the mobilization concerned with that, and that this translates into that post-war moment uh, of the consolidation of, of anti-imperial sovereignty norms and self-determination norms. Uh, so uh, it's the resistance, ultimately, uh, that emerges, and uh, particularly associated with the rise of nationalism, uh, but also the, the, the many dysfunctional wars and revolutions that emerge out of uh, in the 20th century, early first half of the 20th century, associated with that. Yeah. Uh, how much can that be pushed back? Because in 1918, uh, the idea seemed to be <coughs> that sovereignty was a good thing, and but and, and uh, the wars are mostly fought over territory. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, wars, wars that emerged out of competition among empires, right? Competition among empires. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you know, the, 
the emergence consolidation of uh, sovereignty norms and self-determination was not, you know, it, it consolidated itself after the Second World War, but it was a long process of development, I mean, as we all know, uh, several hundred years. So you can trace, you, you know, over time sort of the development of these norms, uh, their increasing applicability, their spread, their universalization. Uh, and after World War I, uh, in fact, there was an, uh, a slight increase in the negative characterizations of empire. Uh, I can, if I can get the, uh, let's see if I can get back to, So here you can see, after World War I, uh, negative characterizations of empire uh, begin to increase significantly. And of course, that's when the anti-colonial movement also takes off. Uh, and positive you know, characterizations of empire begin to decline. But it really is only after World War II that you get the enormous rise in the negative characterizations and the consolidation of it. So I don't see it as a one-time act, but as a process that developed. But a mo uh, sort of period of you know, 20 years after World War II where it really consolidates uh, and becomes hegemonic to the point by 1960 you know, where it's out of sight. Well, that's, it's part of it, certainly. And as I said, I think reputations are in part constructed. And one way of, of denigrating an authority is to call it imperial. Um, you know, if you, go, you engage in too much of that and totally use it in, a, in an instrumental way, you lose credibility. So uh, North Korea's characterizations of the United States are not widely held as credible in the world today, precisely because they're highly ritualistic and used precisely for that purpose. Nobody believes North Korea's characterizations of it. Perhaps some in the regime who have no access to alternative information, but nobody outside the regime takes them seriously. So you lose credibility if you totally manipulate it. Totally manipulate it. But I think, as I showed before, there are behavioral shifts. That shifts, shifts in opinion that take place that are associated with particular behaviors by states. The Russian case is a good one. And in fact, what you said was, was, was not quite correct because Russia's international reputation uh, among states, at least as shown by the BBC Globescan surveys, is one of the lowest in the world. Uh, only the United States and Iran have poorer reputations in the world than Russia. Uh, and China has a, doesn't have a bad reputation, relatively so, in the world. Um, and uh, China's imperial policies, most of them, have been directed inward uh, and 
Of course, whenever something happens inside China, such as the Uyghur rebellion or Tibetan issue, uh, then people think about the imperial character of the Chinese state. But otherwise, it seems to be tainted uh, or, or tamed by self-interest and self-constraint. And uh, uh, you know, the fact that China is, has its power is growing, but it hasn't engaged in behaviors, hasn't engaged in behaviors uh, abroad so far uh, that would have violated those norms that I talked about has meant that its, its imperial reputation abroad has been constrained. Uh, so I think it wasn't quite the way that you, that you described it. So this might not be so as dirty for them. Mm Well, that's exactly what it is. And that's, why, that's what informal empire is about. Okay? Informal empire is using these norms of sovereignty, just war, and so on in order to, to mask uh, a relationship of domination in the way that I define domination. Okay? There's an unconstrained arbitrary power. Uh, and you know, so that's exactly why we are, are given a very heavy burden of trying to judge which are genuine performances and which are not. So when the American government puts together a coalition of the willing, uh, you know, we have to judge, is that international society? Is that the approval of international society? Some people might think, yeah, that's international society. But it happened to be that a lot of people didn't. Okay? So we're, we are burdened with, with uh, trying to decide whether the, these performances by states, the beha their behaviors, are, are credible or are not credible in terms of the ways in which they frame their actions. The first question I wasn't sure I quite got. Right. Uh-huh. Well, a caliphate, right, right. Yeah, Muslim caliphate. Uh -huh. Well, that's an interesting point, and I hadn't thought about that in terms of al-Qaeda, whether, whether one should consider their, their, their call for a Muslim caliphate as, as a call for empire. But certainly they don't use, they don't use the term, say that we want an empire, uh, that we want a Muslim empire. They say we want a Muslim caliphate. Okay, and so I think that they're making a distinction because they use the term empires, empire, imperialism, and so on to describe an <laughs> illegitimate form. So, mm -hmm. 
Uh, sure, it's a matter of semantics, but semantics, the question is, what is behind the semantics? What are the behaviors that are associated with the semantics, right? What, is the, what are the ways in which people connect the words that they use with, with behaviors? Uh, and so, yeah, it's not, it's not totally a matter of, uh, uh, I mean, if the United States identified or Americans identified a, or others identified a Muslim caliphate as imperial, then you would see that word being used uh, specifically. Um, so I'm not sure that that it's you know it's just a matter of arbitra arbitrariness entirely. Um, in fact, I mean that's something that doesn't exist, right? Uh, Muslim caliphate doesn't exist, and it's because its likelihood of existing is probably pretty small. Uh, so. Robert McMahon. Most of your examples of imperial representation focus on the behavior of the state. And yet, it, it seems to me there are two realms in which it's not so much the state which is the actor, it's by the agents within the state. Mm -hmm. One is the realm of economics, and the other is the realm of culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have kept track of those, okay? So when multinational corporations like Shell Oil are, are called imperial or colonial or whatever, right? Or one of the 20, which is not American. It's not, yeah, or <laughs> whatever other, McDonald's, whoever. Uh, cultural imperialism, charges of cultural imperialism, I, I, I've tried to keep track of that. Now those charges in, in the particular discourse that I'm looking at are just not as prevalent. doesn't mean that they're, Again, what I said before is, you know, you can't judge the, the absence of an imperial reputation by the absence of a widespread discourse about empire. Uh, so, um, but there are particular, as I was saying, international norms which tend to focus people's attentions on uh, processual and uh, um, retributive forms of justice rather than distributive. And I think that that tends to depoliticize. Uh, t the accusations are, are, are obviously out there, but it, ten it tends towards depoliticizing them. Um, but I, you're absolutely right. That's part of the part of the equation. I focused on states, uh, but the other other actors are certainly there. Oh, and international organizations, too. You know, WTO, etc. So. Mm -hmm. 
Do they consider that a relationship of foreign domination? I think it's just a matter of tradition. Besides, the, the British Queen has no power, really. Uh, so I, I don't think that, the, that they're, they're particularly concerned about it as an imperial relationship. Uh, it's largely a formal relationship. But I wanted to pick up one thing that you said, which is an interesting point. It's not really what I'm saying that all of a sudden, in the 20th century, negative characterizations of empire emerged for the first time. Okay. Throughout history, there have always been negative characterizations of empire. The problem is, is that those voices often are not recorded in recorded history. And we do have cases, some cases in which they are. So, for instance, in Tacitus, you have the famous speech by Calgacus, the Scottish chieftain, uh, who talks about the Roman Empire as, uh, he says, uh, they murder and rob and they call it under the false name of empire. And this is reported through the, through the Rome. And there are other examples of this. But it's just, so the people who, who obviously were subjected to enslavement <laughs> in, the, in the Roman Empire uh, when you were conquered, uh, or uh, and by, in, in many other empires, or were subordinated in other imperial relationships, didn't necessarily... You know, I'm not saying that they didn't have a negative characterization of empire, but what changes here in the mid-20th century is that the powerful also accept that understanding of empire. Okay? And that's a major shift. Uh, so the, the powerful don't want to be understood as being an imperial empire. Oh, I mean, the South Ossetian population does not view it as Russian imperialism, right? So uh, the South Ossetian population welcomed Russian power into the area um, and saw it largely as, as, as protection against Georgia. Uh, so, uh, you know, one person's imperialism can be another person's uh, self-determination or sovereignty. And I want to say that, the, you know, the, these, these, are, these are things which are clear-cut. Uh, but uh, in the eyes of, of much of the world, as you saw from those negative characterizations of Russia that rose by 15 to 30 percent uh, right in the aftermath of that war, that this was understood as a violation of, of international norms and behavior which was arbitrary uh, and, and self-serving on the part of Russia. Okay? So, I mean, what Russia did was they, they handed out passports two South Ossetians, Russian passports to South Ossetians on the eve of the war uh, so that they were Russian citizens and it could claim that it was coming to rescue 
uh, Russian citizens. Again, here we're talking about informal empire has to paint itself in the, in, in the guise of, of, uh, of international norms. So, um, you know, they dismembered uh, a recognized state uh, in uh, international law and did not follow the norm that we, we international borders generally are sacrosanct except with the approval of uh, the sovereign state itself. Okay. The corollary of the of, of uh, really the notion of sovereignty. So, um, you know, now the other part of, uh, of the question was about racism uh, and imperialism. And I don't know that I, I mean, obviously racism in, was very closely connected with imperialism, uh, you know, from uh, 18th century uh, through uh, into, the, into the 20th century. Um, certainly, uh, in, in some cases, it's, it's present, but I haven't specifically identified that charge. Uh, as, you know, I think it's, it's an element of it, for certain, but it's often not spoken about. So I don't know that I have all that much to say uh, specifically about it out of, out of the, you know, the stuff that I've been looking at. Um, but it is probably something that I should explore a lot more. Um, two quick questions. Uh, one, have you looked at some of the anti-imperial norms that you, the examples that you gave, um, they all seem to be sort of like blunt instruments. Um, mm -hmm. Have you looked at uh, the effects of like development uh, aid, security sector reform, mm -hmm. stuff like that, and how that is translating into anti- uh, or That's my intention. Okay. okay. So my intention is to look at that at that relationship, to use my both my uh, uh, analysis of articles and also the BBC GlobeScan surveys uh, to try to look at what is the relationship, let's say, between how close a state is to the United States in terms of its UN voting record, and how frequent are accusations of empire, and has that changed over time? So. I mean, one of the features of what happened under the Bush administration was that accusations of imperialism rose precipitously among those states that were close to us. Okay, and that's, you know, a feature of a more generalized reputation that one is what, that one earns, um, not just sort of what Rick was saying, utilizing it, you know, in a utilitarian way, right? So that's a good example of of how behavior does affect people's understandings. And, um, but my intention. I'm just not at the, I, I'm cleaning my data. I'm still pulling together data. I'm not right at the point where I can do that, but my intention is actually to do a, a quantitative study uh, that will uh, try to tease out uh, what those effects are and to control for those factors and to see. So you can measure, you can measure the impact, I would to say, of behavior, controlling for these other factors. <coughs> Recognized image in the international society. Is inevitable the gap 
So why the Syrian gap is inevitable, either it's, it's the case of Russia or the United States. Dollar is related to the informal impact. <coughs> it looks like, uh, in this case, it's uh, very complicated that when we talk about the leadership of the international society, I think uh, the mainstream public opinion in the United States or the US uh, foreign policy is trying to uh, make the United States play a lead, leadership, leading role. So that's probably, but how to make a distinction between a policy leading role and an empire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think as I'm, I'm trying to sort of carve a space out for empire, that's different from hegemony, okay, or even different from hierarchy. Uh, I mean, if you look at David Lake's, for instance, work, more recent work on, on hierarchy in international affairs, what's his definition of empire? It's an example, he calls it extreme hierarchy, <laughs> okay? Uh, and I don't know what's more, how do you measure the difference between hierarchy and extreme hierarchy exactly, and what, in some cases, in his data, of course, some states are at the higher levels of hierarchy and some are at lower le levels of hierarchy, so some would be in imperial relationships and some necessarily wouldn't, but I, I don't, I'm trying to get away from that to some extent. It's not that I don't recognize hierarchy as important, um, but I would rather talk in terms of domination because I think it, it conjoins us with the behavioral element which is, which is associated with sharp rises of negative opinions about states' uh, behavior, okay, often. When they, when, uh, and what is, the, what is the nature of that? So um, then the other part of your question was about sort of, okay, great. You know, we use the term great power. Uh, great power, when we use it, Americans don't use that term uh, because it confers a legitimacy <laughs> on power that we, um, you know, that we, like to see. Um, that in itself is a reflection of the fact that we consciously or subconsciously think there is a difference between empire and a great power. Uh, so I guess I'm kind of uh, in the Eikenberry understanding. There is a difference between uh, sort of liberal hegemony and uh, imperial ambition. Um, and so I'm trying to make that make that distinction real and to try to give it some concrete theoretical grounding and ways of measuring it. I'm going to call on myself for the last question and ask you how relational the interpretations are. Uh -huh. that when um, you know, World War II ends and you have uh, French and British Empire, you have a, a, a warring Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe. And I'm wondering, and the U.S. positions to be the uh, decolonizer I'm wondering whether or not uh, you know, French and British reputations as empires declined a lot faster despite their practices because of the rise of the Soviet Empire. Hmm. So you get this mismatch between behavior and reputation because mm -hmm. the presence of another empire out there. That That's much more prominent and much more visible. Right. Then you see the U.S. The US um, probably, again, this is, you know, I don't know, this is the case, but I assume Vietnam led to a large spike in understanding the U.S. as an empire, yeah. which helped to bury Right. Yeah, and of course the French and British were in the midst of formal decolonization, which helped them to uh, to move, try to move beyond. But uh, and and their imperial reputations persist. Okay, it's not like they're gone. Uh, there is some element of a French imperial reputation that persists in Africa, parts of Africa, and so on. So, uh, but that's an interesting question about their relationship. So, uh, 
you know, in, uh, reputations take place in societies, and those who gain the, uh, you know, reputations occur among those who gain visibility. Uh, so you, particularly as societies become large, now international society isn't so large, but it's large enough that we don't, you know, we pay attention to the visible uh, more often and the behavior of the visible. Uh, so uh, I, that's a really, you know, interesting idea to pursue. Um, but I think, you know, during during the Cold War, one one of the ways in which the United States was able to temper its imperial reputation was because it did at least it was able to temper it within Western Europe, was that it, it was able to make a convincing argument that it was providing a public good, defense against Soviet expansionism. Uh, and, uh, you know, so <clears throat> that tempered it. That's why, you know, Lindestock calls it an empire by invitation. Uh, empire, but in a euphemistic term, it's not necessarily uh, was he was talking about as a form of foreign domination, but as a form of hierarchy. Uh, so, uh, so you know whether states can provide convincing performances on these sorts of things is really, I think, what is is critical. And states do shed their imperial reputations. Often, it's taken a large contraction of, of state power for them to shed their imperial reputations. Right? Uh, but it is possible to shed one's imperial reputation. Um, so, you know, I'm not, although I think imperial reputations are quite sticky, it takes a, a very, you know, long, it takes a long and a very visible and uh, apparent out-of-character set of actions in order to undermine uh, imperial reputation. Of course, among your friends, the requirements are less so than among your enemies. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> well, thank you, Mark, for helping us understand that. <laughs>